I'm so grateful to be joined up here by a few of the many people working on the Green Sanctuary, which is our, our committee and our movement to continue to live as a congregation as, and as individuals in a way that is sustainable. You know, the first, I, I read that book a long time ago, several years ago when it was fairly new. Um, it bears rereading, as I've discovered over the last couple of weeks. But um, when I planned this service, it was on the basis not of that first reading, but on a kind of paraphrase of, I think, maybe that passage. But here is how it was paraphrased to me in something else I read. Um, in Robin Wall Kemmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, she describes asking her class of freshman biology students what value humans have for the environment. And to her dismay, they couldn't name a single thing. We all hear and say things like, humans are garbage. The world would be better off without us. That may be somewhere else in the book. Um, I'm not sure, but that's, that's the idea that I was taking into this service. And not just because that uh, maybe Kimmerer's freshman biology students said it or not, um, but that it really echoed something I have heard, read, even thought too many times. Look it up on the web. Would the earth be better off without the human species? You'll find a lot of debate, and you'll find a lot of people ruefully believing that maybe it would be. I mean, the planet will go on with, without us, of course. Um, and the planet will go on with us. But we know enough about the history of this planet to know that out of the, um, rising out of the constant ebb and flow of species coming into being and disappearing into extinction that is just a natural part of this ecosystem, there have been five spikes of extinction in the history of the world, this planet. Since life came along, there have been five great extinctions, moments where, moments, millions of years perhaps, where a change in climate, uh, the striking of an asteroid on the surface of the planet, some change brought about a wave of extinctions. And then, of course, the ecosystem regained its equilibrium and came back, but not before many, many species disappeared. We are in the middle of the sixth great extinction, and we know what has caused it. This is the Anthropocene extinction. It was caused by one species. It is being caused by one species, and the Earth has never seen anything like that. So the great extinction that we bring about, not mostly through shooting things, mostly through taking up so much habitat and changing so much about the ocean, the soil, the air, the landforms and patterns of migration that other species simply can't change fast enough to keep up with what we are doing. Well, 
I lost the beginning of that sentence. But anyway, whatever happens out of that, whether humanity continues to exist or, as I hope we do, or not, the earth will go on. It will go on with plenty of living species, as it always does after great extinctions. I personally would like it to go on with tigers still here and penguins and tardigrades. Well, we probably can't wipe out tardigrades. Nothing can. It's a good thing. I really like them. And so you can understand that it's a, an existential question of humans who care about the earth. A tragic question. Is the earth better off without us? Is it us or the tigers and the polar bears? That's not a good feeling. Now, I take great heart, and I'm sure you all do, knowing I'm speaking to a room full, many rooms full of environmentalists. I take great heart in the people who are making a huge difference. People like, like Jesse and Jerry and all the thousands of people who gathered to try their best to stop that pipeline, to join the water protectors led by indigenous people who said, not only our land, but the planet is at risk if we keep transporting and burning fossil fuels. We have to do something different, and we're going to hold the line here. Those people make, make my heart feel a little bit better. And then there's the folks that I was telling you all about when you were up here, the kids were up here, um, Jane Cantwell and Nate Calvin, who worked really hard to restore the life of this one bird and who work really hard in the case of Cantwell to restore the lives of raptors and make us all aware of how we should be helping raptors. Again, not by refraining from shooting them, although that would be a start, but by not putting poisons into the water and the soil that make their lives difficult by protecting their habitat, by just taking up our, our share of the resources of this planet and not so much more than our share. People like that, you know, you can look up stories and it's a good thing to do. The people right here at this congregation and all over who are turning things around, who are doing their best to defend this whole planet, to make the human race an asset, not garbage, not something that would make the biosphere as a whole say, sure wish we didn't have that species here. However, I can't help noticing when I look up those stories that the problems that these folks are fixing by seeking to block a pipeline, by engineering a new beak for a marvelous beast, those problems were caused by other humans in the vast majority of cases. Although, of course, we do have engineers doing amazing things to solve other problems presented by other parts of nature. It's hard not to notice that when it comes to the big things, 
like the pollution of the soil, like the acidification of the oceans, like climate change. It's humans pushing back against human-made problems. And there we are back in that existential crisis. Should we exist? Not us individually. We're nice people. But as a species. I don't think it's a good frame of mind to be in. I don't think it helps us. I don't think it's a good way to live, having this sneaking suspicion that you're not a very beneficial species. And I don't think it's a good frame of mind to be in when it comes to getting the energy to heal the earth. Despair might be motivating in short bursts, but it's really not sustaining. We need something else. So I was really glad when I started rereading Braiding Sweetgrass, which is, as I said, worth reading again and again and again. Um, I was very glad to discover the passage that I thought that person must have been paraphrasing, the one that Barbara just shared with us, and discovered that, in fact, there was quite a different flavor to it, that she wasn't asking the students do you think that, um, that we're worthwhile? Do you think that we have value? She was saying, do you think the earth loves you the way you love the earth? We all love the earth. As she says, no question in that group of people, and I know there's no question here too, that many of us would say exactly what they said, nature, Wilderness is the place where we experience our greatest sense of belonging and well-being. We love this complex ecosystem to which we belong. But does it love us back? That is so much better a way to frame the question. And it's a hard question to even think about, to answer but a really important one. Now, Robin Wall Kimmerer is a, is a wonderful writer, a poetic writer, and a fine teacher. But she's also a scientist. She's a botanist, particularly, in particular, a, an expert in mosses, one of the world's foremost expert in, uh, experts in mosses. And, um, and she's a environmental scientist, this is what she does. So she's well aware of the problems that we might get into if we anthropomorphize nature, the planet itself, as we do with the saying, the image Gaia. And yet, she wants us to really think about this. So she gives us a, a way that a scientist could wrap their mind around this idea. Does the earth love us? And I think the way she does this is by shifting us away from thinking of love as a feeling and looking more at love as actions. She says, recognizing that this is a hard thing for scientists to grasp, where's the evidence? What are the key elements for detecting loving behavior? She says, that's easy. 
No one would doubt that I love my children, and even a quantitative social psychologist would find no fault with my list of loving behaviors, Dr. Kimmerer says. Nurturing health and well-being, protection from harm, encouraging individual growth and development, desire to be together, generous sharing of resources, and on and on. Sacrifice by one for the other. Interdependence. This is how we know that one being loves another without being able to read the being's mind or know whether they think and feel the way we do. We can tell. That's all the things you do for your children. Looks like you love them. Well, she says, does the earth love us? Does it nurture our health and well-being? Does it protect us from harm? Does it share its resources with us generously? I'm going to come back around to Kimmerer's idea of how to help ourselves see the earth is doing just that if we're not quite convinced. But first I want to look a little bit more at some of the things that present our, um, our dilemma, our human dilemma. What is it about our species? Because lots of species come and go and they make things difficult for some other species and beneficial for other species. And, you know, of course we have a role in our ecosystem. We are eaten and eat things. We exhale things that some of creation needs and inhale things that they produce. But our particular talent that makes us have, I would say, such an outsized effect on our environment, considering our numbers, is, well, our ability to think ahead, if imperfectly, to reason, also imperfectly, to build things that last way beyond us. In other words, our technology. It's not useful to just bemoan that. It's who we are. We're not going to be able to forget that we can build, that we can make plastic and roads, that we can make shelters that live longer than any individual one of us, that we can make tunnels for toads to get through in order to escape the cars that we also make that we can make amazing things that will scoop up the tiny, tiny plastics after we discover that they have spread far beyond our control. As our hymn said, Earth was given as a garden. In the garden, if you want to follow the Eden image, tree of life was planted there and the tree of knowledge. We reap the tree of knowledge. It's what we do. And we're not going to stop. We can't forget what we know. But lest we think that that dooms us to be the doom of other creatures, we could look at the ways that human beings use technology. I don't have time to go into a long explication 
of Balinese water temples. But I urge you to look them up, to look up the presentations of Stephen Lansing, whom I first discovered through the Long Now Foundation, the organization here in the Bay Area that is dedicated to thinking long term, saying, you know, this is something we don't do so well as humans. Let's think long term. And Lansing, who's an anthropologist, says, you know, the people in Bali have been doing this for a very long time. They have a very complex irrigation system, and irrigation really lends itself to selfishness and greed taking over. As I said, I can't go into all the details, but suffice it to say, the people of Bali have not eradicated selfishness and greed. They can be selfish, they can be greedy, but they have created a complex system of irrigation in which the people upstream have just as much reason to protect the water and pass it along, good to use, to the people in the pad rice paddies downstream as the people downstream do. Usually that's not the case, right? The people downstream suffer from what happens upstream, but the people upstream, they don't care. The people of Bali have solved this problem. They solved it over a thousand years ago, and they have sustained the system all that time. They know how. They're no different than people anywhere else. Lansing has some other reasons to be hopeful that we could adopt systems like this elsewhere in the world. I'll just say one other thing that gives me hope is, well, Kemmerer and her people, because not only is she a botanist and a scientist and a professor, she is a Potawatomi member of that nation, and she learns from indigenous wisdom and passes on indigenous wisdom that she incorporates into her science and her writing. Again, human people who have known and practiced for a very long time how to live sustainably. It's not that they don't build houses. It's not that they don't take up any rooms. It's not that they don't leave trash behind or bury their dead and need space among the other creatures. But they have ways of keeping a balance. And they have done it for over 10,000 years. Human beings know how to do this. And again, a problem, I think, sometimes with modern environmentalism, not only is that we can get stuck in despair and self-hatred, but those of us who are not indigenous can get this sort of woo-woo attitude towards those who are. And say, oh, they are, they are an enlightened kind of being. Well, they're very wise societies. But again, they are not free of greed and selfishness and the things that can create environmental disaster if we let them run rampant. What they have is very old, tested, honored institutions for counteracting those things. They have the social technology to be wise about our other technologies, just like the people in Bali who know all about irrigation and could use it so that the upstream people can get all the good water and leave the people downstream with nothing much for their rice patties. But they have figured out a way to overcome that and many natural pests that assail 
rice farmers as well. So I'd like to return to this question of love. If we remind ourselves not only that we love the earth, and not only that we love other human beings, but that the earth loves us, all of us, the way a mother loves her children, sustaining them, giving them what they need, sharing her resources with them so that they might thrive. If we can remember that, then we know to look to the people who figured out how to live in such a way that we love one another and the earth for the long haul, for thousands and thousands of years. We know how to do this, we human beings. We've got the proof in many, many places. Not just among the Potawatomi and Bali, but in many human cultures, including right here at UUCPA. How do we remember that? Well, we already know that just telling people about environmental problems is not enough to motivate them to live in balance, to live as a blessing upon this earth. It's not. And definitely beating ourselves up and feeling like maybe we should just disappear as a species, that would be best. That doesn't seem to be very motivating either. What Kemmerer says, if you're having trouble remembering that the earth loves you, she says, plant a garden. When you plant a garden, you know every day, this is my mother giving something back to me. I have given this patch of land something it needs, and look, it is giving me blueberries. Is that not an exchange that, if it were between human beings, would look like love? I take care of this patch of land, and it produces flowers that give me joy. So maybe what we need is not just to go out into nature and take in its beauties, as her graduate students did. They said, I know that. I'm at peace there. That's good. That's good. But we need to not just do that. And we certainly need not to go into the wilderness and think, oh, this place would be perfect if it were not for us, for me and my kind. But to go into a relationship with the earth in which we are caring for a piece of the earth and a piece of the earth is caring for us in return. I would love to see what kind of human beings and what kind of harvest of nature we would reap if we knew just how much the earth loves this species. Let's see if we can discover that together.